Hello and welcome to The Alcohol File, a podcast series that explores how we can better understand the impact of alcohol in our lives. This podcast is provided by Alcohol Action, Ireland's leading independent advocate for reducing alcohol harm. I'm your host, Eunan McKinney, and today, along with our guests, we'll be discussing the growing sophistication of alcohol marketing and promotion and ask why does the alcohol industry producers, distributors and vendors commit such expenditure on marketing? How effective are their campaigns and who are the principal targets of their strategies? A brief examination of the published accounts of a number of leading alcohol producers highlights the the billions spent in marketing activities. With marketing investment as a percentage of net sales, usually somewhere between 15 and 20%. The latest Diageo accounts of 2021 report a £2.162 billion annual investment in marketing, which represents around 17% of their net sales. So you begin to get a sense of the scale of the monies and the expenditures that's involved. In Ireland, after more than a decade of advocacy to reduce alcohol harm and the enactment of a series of evidence-based controls, alcohol use is slowly declining. And yet an estimated 100 million is spent annually on alcohol marketing and promotion. This includes traditional advertising in print, in broadcasting and in outdoor media. But beyond that, there is an increasingly heavy investment by alcohol brands in digital innovation online. There's also multiple extensions of product sponsorship into arts, sports and increasingly brand alignment with political and social causes. And there's a wide range of surrogate activity, often unrecognised, particularly that of retailers' promotion, both above and below the line activity. And finally, there's a relatively unquantified space of social influencers and product placement and promotion that weaves a commentary and influence throughout our everyday lives. So joining me today to discuss some of these matters, I'm delighted to welcome Three really great guests. Dr. Amanda Atkinson is a senior researcher with the Public Health Institute at Liverpool John Moores University. Dr. Nathan Critchlow is a SSA academic fellow at the Institute of Social Marketing and Health in the University of Stirling. And Jennifer Hall is research and policy officer at Alcohol Action Ireland. So we're delighted to have all of you here today to give us your perspective on some of these particular issues and highlight some of the work that you've been doing, especially around some of those areas of of alcohol marketing that we outlined. And if I can perhaps begin by bringing Nathan into our, our opening discussion. Nathan, thank you for joining us. I was just when I was preparing, obviously, for our podcast today, you know, it's important. Sometimes we we often overlook the 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 central component to alcohol use is actually that the alcohol has to be sold. And of course, in that context, marketing, as we outlined by this, by the spend level, marketing is such a crucial driver of consumption and over recent times i think we, we have seen certainly here in ireland but also in fields broader fields that in, in your own in the uk and indeed in europe there has been a variety of policy endeavors taken to try and address what is 
the the proliferation of alcohol marketing and the effectiveness of alcohol marketing, especially in the context of uh, young people and bringing about a new audience and a new market for the consumption of alcohol and the continuing of revenues. So to that, I'm just wondering, you know, what do you see now as, as the main as the main policy developments that are taking place in this space that are going to bring about some lasting changes? Yeah, thanks very much for inviting me on the podcast. I think uh, the main policy developments, I think, are happening in Ireland and they are, they're really significant. And from the, uh, the standpoint of a prevention researcher, I would say that they're, they're quite exciting to observe. We know that the World Health Organization recommend bans or statutory restrictions on alcohol advertising as one of their best buys to reduce alcohol-related harm. Um, and as you mentioned, there's several countries already in Europe that follow that recommendation, France, Norway, Lithuania, um, for examples. But I think what's significant is that the controls in all of these countries were largely implemented without robust pre and post evaluation. And for example, monitoring the actual change that um, happened in alcohol marketing or monitoring changes in consumer awareness and reaction. And we know that this kind of pre and post evaluation evidence has been so important, demonstrating the impact of similar tobacco control measures and restrictions on tobacco advertising. So Ireland, with it being the latest to follow in this uh, World Health Organization recommendation, is providing a really great opportunity for us now to generate some real world evidence about the impact that the alcohol marketing restrictions could have. But we've certainly seen over the past couple of years, Estonia, Lithuania, we've seen increasingly countries adopting um, that World Health Organization recommendation to have either total bans or comprehensive restrictions. Yeah. And in 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 the, in the context of Ireland, I mean, what, what would you have seen as probably the most I suppose in the immediate sense, the most significant measure that has taken place. Would you say the the restrictions on advertisement in certain places, or do you, you know what 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 is your sense of it so far? I think the answer to that's probably twofold. In that, I think one of the main strengths of Ireland's legislation is the total package. The fact that it looks to address alcohol marketing in various different places and spaces, whether that be outdoor, cinema, sports sponsorship, and print broadcast. It's a real comprehensive package of measures which seeks to reduce overall exposure and overall awareness of alcohol marketing, not just a targeted intervention with one um, channel. But I think there are some particular parts of Ireland's legislation that really stand out. And um, I think some of them are yet to still be commenced. But I think the plans to limit alcohol advertising to only factual information um, and to mandate the presence of health warnings and the presence of in, uh, links to websites providing independent public health information about alcohol, I think they're really game changers because where we see alcohol marketing and the total volume we see is, is undoubtedly important. But some of the real appeal in marketing is within the connotations that it presents. And if you can limit um, that down to only factual information, as Ireland plans to do, you really start to tackle what makes marketing so persuasive in the first place. Yeah, and I believe you've done some work with some colleagues in, in France recently just assessing you know, the, a similar type of approach that took place in France. Maybe you could just give us a little bit of, of what your analysis of that particular and what the findings of that work was. Yeah, absolutely. So this was a, a study that's uh, only recently just been published. It was led by uh, my colleague, uh, Professor Karine Ga- uh, gallapel Morvan, And we conducted an online experiment with uh, just over 2,000 young adults in France. And in that study, we were aiming to pretty much replicate what they already do in France in terms of limiting advertising to factual information, which is the same as they'll bring in in Ireland. 
So to do that, we showed the participants in the study a series of alcohol adverts for various brands. And, and these adverts were either only limited to factual information about the product and, or the adverts showed more evocative features at the same time. For example, different contexts, be it sports and parties or adverts with or without characters in them. And after showing them these series of adverts, we asked them to report their reactions, for example, to what extent the adverts appealed and potential behavioural impact, etc. And we found that for pretty much all of the reaction measures that we included, we found that the adverts which featured the context and that featured characters were rated as being much more attractive than those which were only limited to neutral features, which again is something that France already does and Ireland will do. And this research really does go to show that the that these types of restrictions do limit the appeal and potential influence of marketing, and particularly among young adults who are a really important target market, both of the alcohol industry, but also a really important target market for uh, public health prevention measures. Yeah, I'll, and maybe at this point, it might be great if we could just bring in Amanda to, to this discussion as well, because Amanda... You have brought to us in recent times a, a really terrific paper, which was published in the International Journal of Drug Policy, where you've been working with some colleagues on, on an analysis of the alcohol brand marketing as it presents itself in, in a gendered way, shall we say. And um, this is a really fascinating paper and, and really looks at what is some of the key drivers and some of the key marketing strategies that are at play now from the alcohol producers, especially into this digital environment, let's say. Could you maybe talk a little bit about your some of the findings that you have, or maybe just if you want to outline the context of the paper, I suppose, in the first instance, but also then maybe explain just how important content has been in, in shaping some of the outcomes that you've, you've found in this work. Absolutely. So this is one aspect of a, a much broader um, project funded by the Economic and Social Research Council. And we're exploring the, the nature, influence and regulation of alcohol marketing, which, is, which could be classed as gendered in nature. So we're focusing on not just brand marketing, but nightlife venue marketing and the role of that within spreading the messages of, of, of brands also. So as part of that, we've done a large analysis of how brands promoted their products on social media over an 18-month period. So we looked at around 2,000 posts by 20 brands, and we found that, that content is very highly gendered. So up to 90% of the sample could be classed as gendered. And we've done an in-depth analysis on specifically how women were being targeted and represented and more recently, as of this week, actually, we've reached a number of 160 people, predominantly women and LGBTQ plus people that we spoke to, to to get their views and opinions on this type of marketing and how it plays a role in their identity formation and experiences of drinking and nightlife spaces. And we're interested in not just the implications for gendered marketing on, on drinking and drinking practices, but on how they play a role in reproducing certain gender stereotypes and therefore potentially the treatment um, of, of women in particular. And broadly, our, our findings found that marketing, which targets and represents women, predominantly reproduces but also challenges gender stereotypes. And people have different definitions of what a gender stereotype might be and how harmful those might be. And we found that this is influencing the way in which women relate to this type of content. Just to explain a little bit on that in terms of the identity creation and, and, and stereotypes. I mean, is, is it that you're saying that the alcohol promotion and the alcohol position, the positioning of the alcohol brand is, is in itself influencing 
how people see themselves or how they how they interact with the alcohol brand? I'm, I'm not clear mm-hmm. exactly what you're saying in that context. So firstly, we know that the, the brands are important in people's identity making and how they signal, say, femininity or masculinity within that. So brands are highly gendered. They provide ways of reproducing and provide ways of, of, of being feminine, which relate to individuals and they then um, draw on that within their identity making we also know that brands provide opportunities to drink they for example in terms of female targeted marketing every context of socialization and every context of friendship is associated with alcohol use so it provides a um, various opportunities various times of day various events etc so it provides you know examples of of how alcohol should be consumed and it generally infiltrates every form of leisure and interaction yeah and i I think i I found that really interesting in the paper like where you talked about how it's almost you know the alcohol brand is mimicking almost the the domestic sphere Mm -hmm. but also mimicking the idea around companionship and female companionship or female friendship you know and you know essentially shaping that narrative to its own to its own gain essentially absolutely and what was interesting with that as well was that 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 was less being used less by brands targeting men so focusing on this idea of friendship and that alcohol is essential to to bond with friends was predominantly being used to target women and um, for example, the context of pre-drinking, getting together and before a night out, having drinks with friends, applying makeup, so quite an appearance-based femininity um, was, was being used. And, you know, we found that this, this is probably the, the, the main theme that, that people um, that we spoke to, um, women that we spoke to, they were kind of less critical um, of this type of marketing because it did generally, you know, reflect their real life experiences and the importance of that context to their friendship. Although we, we spoke to a subsample of women that would define themselves as sober and they're quite active within the online positive sober community, which is quite a feminized um, community itself. And they felt that this focus on friendship acted as a barrier to women who might have problematic alcohol use that were considering sobriety because it reinforces that idea that to be social, to be a good friend, you've got to drink. You had to be part of that drinking circle, so to speak. Absolutely. And also that idea that to interact, to be social involves alcohol and a lot of these women and and not just the women that are sober but within our sample a lot of women spoke about social anxiety so indirectly there was that idea that this focus on socialization and friendship and and the need to drink to socialize might actually be playing into that that context and experience of, of social anxiety Mm. And the other other aspect, it's earlier in the paper, a little bit earlier in the paper, but you know, you you talked about, I suppose, the visual, what I would consider the kind of the visual cues or the the imagery is associated with this this idea of pretty and pink, and the idea that you know marketing and the aesthetics around the marketing image, you know, essentially brought in a whole range of accessories that were essentially targeting at women as well. Maybe you could just tell us a little bit about because I think this is really very, very interesting, this as well. Absolutely. So you mentioned pink there, and that's a really important example. And, you know, we'll all be aware of the, of the pinking of, of most products that target women, but particularly in recent years, the, the pinking of alcohol products. Most big brands now have some kind of pink gin, even if that brand wasn't traditionally a spirits company organization. You know, pink gin has just kind of took over the market. And 
we find that women appreciate the aesthetics of drink much more than men. Men tend to be a bit more conservative in what they drink. And this idea of pink, a lot of women related to that. They found it a way to celebrate femininity. We also found that a lot of women find it very patronising. They find it reduces women to children. And at the same time, we found that increasingly some younger women that kind of would express themselves as being feminists or, you know, taking on a feminist identity. Some were against it because they saw it as a gender, you know, a negative gender stereotype. But some women actually put feminist messages onto this idea of pink because pink is being reclaimed as something that should be celebrated because it's associated with women. And we shouldn't be, you know, we shouldn't see that as negative because indirectly we say that things that are feminine aren't as as, as good or as, um, as valued as things that are masculine. So even just that one example of pink, we can see how female consumers you know, there's, there's lots of different connotations being attached to that. Some use it within their identity performance. So social media culture, going out in the nighttime environment, pink drinks, even pink aesthetics within a venue. We have pink Barbie um, photo booths, for example, which are quite prominent, whereas some will reject pink. And I think it's really interesting and important when we think about brands, that we think about what we, what how people reject brands and what they don't like, because... Some people will avoid one brand because they think that it looks, it, it's too feminine, it's attached to a negative gender stereotype. They might think that it's, for example, um, we, we, ha- we spoke to lots of people that would define themselves as queer and they're discussing how they won't drink brands that are um, Russian vodka because of, you know, the, the, the kind of homophobic connotations of, of yes, the Russian regime. Yes, of course, yes, yes. It's a political choice, yes. It is. So, it, so indirectly, that means that they go to consume another brand because they don't want to consume one. So inadvertently, brands become popular because they, sta- they don't, don't stand for something. Sure. And I suppose that that's the beauty or that's the genius of, of a multi-layered and multi-integrated marketing strategies for, 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 for alcohol brands. Nathan, can I just bring, pop you back in for a second if I can? I mean, is there, you know, you, you, you would have, you'd be very familiar with obviously a lot of the resources ongoing in relation to obviously the effectiveness of marketing. Is there any, is there any insight that you, you, you're aware of in relation to just I mean, there's obviously been, you know, we talk about this quite a bit in our own work over the last two or three decades. There's been a significant shift in what was traditionally, I suppose, a commodity type advertising, a somewhat utility approach or utilitarian approach to alcohol advertising, which simply sought to, you know, essentially push the product more than anything else. But obviously in today's highly tuned world, we're now seeing alcohol being advertised and marketed in the context of brand positioning, which is a much different set of engagement, different, much different set of evaluations. And I'm just wondering, has there been any really work done in, in, in trying to understand what has been the shift and, what, and how effective that has been? Yeah, absolutely. I think it's fascinating uh, listening to Amanda's um, discussion of her paper, because I think that really taps into what we're seeing as a broader movement in a research perspective as well. I think Although we have loads and loads of research um, looking at exposure to and the impact of alcohol marketing, most of that research kind of works on the, the basic assumption of testing that increased exposure to marketing just leads to increased consumption. Exactly. But, yeah. The frequency analysis. Exactly. Like, yeah. And what we're kind of 
what we're seeing more and more now in alcohol marketing research is understanding that it isn't just a case of A causes B. What we're starting to understand is that actually there's lo- humans are inherently complex beings and there's loads of important psychological pathways that we need to look at in terms of understanding and explaining alcohol marketing, because that's simply how alcohol marketers themselves are thinking about their marketing strategies and thinking about their marketing campaigns. So increasingly, alcohol marketing research now is looking at how alcohol marketing shapes normative beliefs and social norms. It's looking at how it starts to set positive expectancies around the outcomes from alcohol and to set salient drinking motives and how to tap into brand attitudes and brand heuristics. These are the concepts of something being cheap, something being expensive, something being premium, something being affiliated with particular sports teams, etc. So I think we're really starting to see a maturing of the alcohol marketing evidence as well that is is more equipped to explain the sophistication um, and the persuasiveness of alcohol marketing in the way that Amanda's been describing it. Mm. And Amanda, can uh, again, can I dip back into your paper and just pick up on what Nathan was talking about there, in terms of just exposure into into various activities? I mean, this whole there's a whole insight here into how alcohol brands are reorientated themselves in, into what is that political social cause space and and you know girl power and strong women and some of these things that are you know we see it popping up we certainly seen it popping up in ireland anyways in the context of rugby can you just maybe talk talk to a little bit about what you found in that particular space because i think it's really interesting for people this Absolutely. So a, a really important finding was that, you know, a, a positive finding was that brands have moved away from sexist content and content that sexualizes women. So we, we have new codes, um, ASA codes, alcohol, um, sorry, the Advertising Standards Association codes that, that are meant to prevent the use of negative gender stereotypes that can cause harm and the sexualization and objectification of women. And we find that brands have already moved away from this because, you know, the obvious reason would be that, that, that you know, the don't want to alienate over 50% of their consumer base who are increasingly gender equality and, and we could say feminist aware. So we found that brands have moved away from this type of sexist targeting and um, so sexualizing women, for example, to, to target the male market. But what's happened instead is that they're, they're drawing on gender equality messages. So as you say there, you know, connotations of girl power, self-care and body positivity, um, collaborations on International Women's Day and also, you know, collaborating with um, cha- women's charities, collaborating with um, feminist activist groups, creating beers to raise attention to causes such as menstrual poverty. And, you know, we we, we can see here that, you know, the political connotations are, are, being implied, are being applied. And I think it's really important if we consider the data on, you know, the trend that young people uh, uh, you know, there's evidence that young people are, are drinking less. And it could be argued that this shift to social cause marketing, whether that be gender equality, whether it be LGBTQ plus causes and rights, even environmentalism. So lots of brands are, could be defined as, you know, potentially greenwashing. We could see that as potentially brands trying to to appeal to this new generation of, of younger people, whether that's men, women, other genders, that, that might be perceived as being more socially aware and more social um, and politically um, engaged. In terms of people's perceptions of this that we spoke to so far, generally this shift from sexism to social cause marketing is seen as a, seen as a positive thing. 
some people, you know, are impressed that brands are being more more aware around equality. But it, it's not really as simple as that. At the, at the same time as it being better than what was, young women and LGBTQ people were also very critical of this move. They've regarded it as a way for, you know, essentially brands to, to make money. It was tokenistic. And they actually discussed an inherent contradiction with a brand and product that can cause harm presenting itself as doing good. A good example of that, which was discussed, was the way in which they promote LGBTQ plus equality and rights when we know that LGBTQ plus people are actually at more risk of experiencing alcohol-related harms. And there was quite a lot of um, negative views towards those collaborations. Yeah, well, I suppose the, um, you know, in the, the classic textbook, you know, positioning on, on developing a brand is always to have a paradox at the heart of it. And, and in some ways, that's what you're, what you're identifying in there. You know, the most successful brands are usually ones that have a distinct paradox at the heart of its proposition and that that allows people to warm to it. Jennifer, we haven't heard from you in our discussion yet. So yeah. I'd like if you could, if I could maybe just bring you in to maybe just pick up on some of those points that Amanda has been talking about, especially in the context of developing the, let's say, you know, putting it plainly, development of the of the female market, which of course has always traditionally been, you know, significantly much less than the male market when it comes to alcohol use. But obviously, there's there's deep and and uh, significant risks involved in all of this. Maybe you could just give us some context of what's happening more locally in Ireland around these issues. Yeah, sure. And um, listening to the conversation, I suppose, really brings home the importance of robust research and indeed advocacy around it. Because unless we have these great pieces of research, you know, at first glance, it's really easy to think, you know, well, it's, it's just advertising. It's not doing any harm. But like, as you guys pointed out, alcohol companies have managed to capture every occasion from Mother's Day to Valentine's or, you know, feel any feel good event and aligning with female friendships and all of those kind of things. Um, but as you and I guess you highlighted in your, your intro, the alcohol industry commits huge amount of money to all of these things because mm. you know what? Advertising works. Works, yeah. But yeah. you know what? When you're advertising a harmful product, it's even more important that it's being scrutinised, you know, and especially this comes for, for women in Ireland in the context of um, 439 women a day dying in 2019 from alcohol-related illnesses and incidents, like all avoidable deaths. And we know that Ireland has particularly high rates of risky alcohol use in women. Uh, in the Global Burden of Disease Studies, women were, Irish women were ranked seventh for heavy, heavy drinking, while um, teenage girls were, are among the highest binge drinkers in the world, actually ranked third and also you know breast the breast cancer links are, are are very very high in ireland we're one in eight breast cancer cases in ireland is linked to alcohol and it's one in five in in europe actually so and of course in common with with a lot of other countries there's a very low level of awareness of the risk of alcohol in relation to cancer with just about 25 percent of women being aware of the direct links and that's where the real kind of dangers is is that the the the, the alcohol industry captures 
delivers the message and puts forward the message and the public health messages. You're all, almost in the, the David and Goliath battle of, of public health and advocacy. People like us, I suppose, trying to, to get other messages out there. Well, that's the, the, para- the paradox yet again at the heart of the brand positioning is that, you know, I mean, if you take about what Amanda was talking about in terms of the, you know, the female friendships, but yet there's never anything about the female, the specific female risk, yeah, which is exactly. obviously much greater exactly. for the female. And it's great to see, you know, there has been a pushback with the campaigns like Don't Pink My Drink and all of these kind of things. And people in Amanda's research, like recognising that this is happening. And like even, you know, just a quick anecdotal story. I gave a presentation around women and marketing to a group of mainly women. But a couple of them texted me afterwards or were in touch afterwards to say, oh, my God, like I never thought about it that way before or now that you know it's almost like when you pull back the veil of what these 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 messages are and these the alcohol industry messages are saying and doing but not telling the other side and you kind of point it out to people they're just like oh wow this is this is you know this is this is crazy like that we we don't know this stuff and that they're be allowed I suppose to 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 give one side of the story without giving the the full picture I suppose and of course the alcohol brands capture of of as you outlined in your piece Amanda as well you know capture of the International Women's Day mm-hmm. is a is a, is a really cynical move I think in that context absolutely and again some you know very different views on this some young women we spoke to kind of see this as a positive thing it's a way to raise attention to women's issues but a lot of them quite 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 cynical of that another big issue that came up was the way in which some brands have campaigns around sexual consent so again mixed views some people seeing it well you know brands are um, taking responsibility other people again drawing attention to that inherent contradiction how a product that's involved in sexual harm and sexual violence against women is actually promoting attention to this without actually acknowledging the harms that their product does so that was something that that came up again and again that that you know is alcohol and alcohol brands are they appropriate allies in terms of gender equality causes lgbtq plus causes you know is is this this almost the 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 product doesn't fit the cause because of those harms that they fail to mention yeah, well, I think that the 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 essence of all of this is really that I mean, I, I view this fairly very simplistically, and that is that you know, as I uh, when we were just talking to Jennifer there, you know, that traditionally women drank, uh, you know, a, a, a third of what what men did, and you know, in the context of maturing markets. You know the 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 targeting of women in particular with clever clever profiling and clever crafting of positioning is essential to the alcohol companies if they want to retain the level of of revenues that they have, especially in Western Europe. Yeah, like I think for sure, like research has shown that since the 1990s, there has been a clear feminization of alcohol products, drinking spaces, drinking cultures and, you know, increasing targeting of women, as we've just discussed. So, you know, alcohol companies have realized it was no longer acceptable to, you know, sexualize women. They turned to new brand positioning, aligning to the idea of empowerment. And yeah, like people, I guess, on the surface, as Amanda said, like you, you do kind of almost buy it at times. You go, oh, look, they're aligning with rugby or they're aligning with, as I say, on, on, until you kind of are 
see the other side, you kind of do can very easily be swayed along by it and buy into it. And, you know, fruity products, pink, pink products, low calorie, all of the and the slogans like wine o'clock, mummy juice, all of these things are things that are out there now in popular culture, whether we've created some of them ourselves as well, or we social media, of course, is huge for the wine o'clock and the mummy juice. And during COVID in Ireland, we saw that you know, home drinking increased massively. And it came across through research that families actually with young children drinking increased more. And there was an, um, another research study where it showed that people who were homeschooling potentially had had used alcohol more. And I suppose that feeds into that whole concept of the, the mother potentially at home trying to balance everything. And the wine, of course, the increase in wine drinking in women has been a, a big factor in, in liver damage in, 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 in younger women. Yeah, like it's it, some might say, God, it's an overreaction or, or to say that these slogans are causing women to, to drink more. But they do create this kind of fabricated culture whereby drinking is encouraged as a coping, coping mechanism for women trying to balance work and life home. So I think we have to, you know, give the, the message and awareness that there for, for alternatives, you know, for women to be able to seek out alternatives if they are having struggles, like the alternative thing, you shouldn't be reaching for the bottle of wine, whether like it's in a jokey social media post at five o'clock or whatever, but to help people to, to realise that, that that could be an issue and to give people alternatives, I guess, from a public health point of view anyway, that would be the, the aim. Yeah. So that kind of brings it back a little bit in, in a full circle way, for if, if I can. And, you know, go back to Nathan and, and you, Amanda, as well. Um, both of you were, I think, co-signatures to a an opinion piece there recently enough in relation to what you saw as the failures amongst alcohol marketing regulation and that there was a need to prioritise protection essentially for all. And I think you're probably, your basis on this is, is coming from some of the recommendations of the, of the World Health Organisation and the Best Buy policies, which we've outlined earlier. But just to that point, I mean, and we've been having a fairly in-depth discussion about marketing techniques and and some of the issues that I would say that arise in that is how alcohol companies are essentially profiling their 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 target audiences. Have you would do you want to expand a little bit about you know what you see as the failures that exist already in that marketing regulation? Nathan, maybe we'd start with you and, and, and maybe move back to, to Amanda. Yeah, of course. I think the key thing with self-regulation is that there's just such a long list of reasons why it's not effective and why it's unlikely to work. And there's just kind of one key group who are the key beneficiaries of that, and that's the commercial producers themselves and certainly not the consumers. I mean, some of the key issues that we see and we raise about self-regulation, including that in, in that paper is that the reliance is on third-party complaints from members of the public. There's no kind of systematic monitoring. Even when there are complaints, the regulatory process can be quite retrospective and slow. And that's particularly important if you think into relation in digital marketing. For example, a post can be made and it can be posted in the morning across multiple multiple social media platforms. It can reach thousands, tens of thousands of, of consumers almost instantly. Yet if someone was to make a complaint about that, it would have to go through the due process. It would then probably take a few weeks and a few back and forths before they reach an adjudication. And then the decision around that might simply be that that piece of marketing needs to be taken down. But at that stage, it's already had its effect and it's already done what it needs to. And it's already been replaced probably 
10 times over. Um, and that also highlights the fact that there's kind of a lack of meaningful sanctions, a lack of meaningful accountability. Quite often the quite soft mandates in response to complaints that are upheld. Um, and there's so many other things about the self-regulation that just are designed with the industry's interests at heart and not the consumers themselves. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's true. And I, I certainly know from from our own experience here in Ireland, you know, in terms of the the continuing to exist self-regulatory voluntary schemes that are embedded in the Advertising Standards Authority are 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 painfully slow and, and certainly aren't responsive to timely complaints about about adverts. Uh, Amanda, were you going to just join in there? Yeah, yeah, just just to pick up on what Nathan said there about the complaints-based system. You, you know, I, I don't want to use the word no no one cares, but but in terms of the the public and just thinking about the 160 people that we've um we we've spoken to within our current study, only a very small number who were active within the sober campaign community were actually aware of this process. So people just, one, as we said earlier, haven't really thought about the implications of this type of marking until you ask them. And then secondly, people aren't aware that there is a system to complain. So so essentially, you know, that, that obviously is one reason why we could say there's very few complaints on, on various grounds. And, and I think secondly, what Nathan was saying there about the, the system being slow, by the time that an advert or a piece of marketing has, has been banned, the message is already out there. But I think, I'm not going to name names of, of brands for obvious reasons, but I think there's, it's fair to say that some brands might deliberately breach some of these regulations. We know that there's some brands where their campaigns have got a lot of attention, a lot of media attention, because they've been quite controversial. And it could be said, it's, again, it might just be my opinion, it could be said that, that you know, that advert got more attention because it breached and therefore was in the mainstream media as, as breaching. Yeah, that there's, that there's some value in notoriety in that context. I think if, if I could just pick up on one thing there as well, thinking about a bro- broader package of marketing regulation. So we talk in there about self-regulation. But if we if we think about some additional initiatives such as um, product labelling. I think research such as our own, which is qualitative research with with women, I I think those approaches could learn from some of our findings around women's views, for example, on calorie labelling. So this is something that's been considered as being um, suggested. We found that brands, a lot of brands that target women are already doing this. They're doing it to market their product as opposed to obviously acknowledge potential um, health harms and to try and reduce drinking. We found that some women related to this, particularly older women that were maybe, you know, less involved in the body positivity movement. But younger women found this as very sexist. They found it as brands potentially replacing one night anxiety, i.e., you know, the harms of drinking with another, concerns about body image. Some felt that it didn't relate to them because alcohol was a treat within their diet and it was something that they didn't consider because they'd earned it. And quite concerningly, some felt that they would actually drink more if that labelling, so using the example of, of brands that promote um, 90 calories in this in this can, if health promotion goes that way, if, if the calorie content of a product is low, some said they might drink more. Some said that if a product was labelled as being high calorie, they might switch to stronger 
drinks, so spirits, because they're generally just as strong or stronger with fewer calories. And a small number actually talked about this idea that if they were becoming more aware of the calories within drinks because of um, labeling, because of marketing, focusing on this, then they would actually potentially reduce their food intake and allow and free up calories for alcohol. So I think there's there's potential implications for, you know, product labeling, focusing on calories there. You know, I think, I think there's, there's, there's a lot to consider. Uh, you know, it's, 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 it's a very interesting set of commentary around uh, what is an evolving situation. And certainly there, there, you know, there are plenty of initiatives certainly taking place at an EU level in our context anyways, in relation to these matters. I suppose in the end, some of these matters do resolve or revolve around the right to know and and you know the, the, the undoubtedly there may be some consequences in other realms but i think the the the, the central tenant of of the right to know both not just what the calorie content is but what the ingredient content is and they, those two tend to go hand in hand and i think you're right i think that the calorie certainly the calorie marker is being used as a marketing device right now especially to attract women to drink beers and ciders. I think that's definitely the case. And you can see that in, in our market anyhow, you know. I might just pick up on one more quick point. It's just to mention the, the Public Health Alcohol Act that it's supposed to pick up that point on the right to know. And I suppose we do have a really progressive piece of legislation here in Ireland. And, you know, we're looking at legislation around labelling of alcohol products with health warnings around with risks of drinking and pregnancy and cancer. But as yet, we don't have a timeline from government as to when this, this really important measure will, will be enacted. And there is public support. We know there is great public support for the right to know. So I suppose, yeah, we just need to continuously, I suppose, raise this issue and remind our legislators like why this is so important and um, that people do, you know, women, real empowerment for women is opening their eyes to the tactics of the alcohol industry, but also giving them full information that will allow them to make informed decisions about consuming a harmful product. Exactly. That full disclosure around the health risk and understanding the risk is obviously critical to consumer choice as well as everything else yeah picking on what amanda was saying before and kind of what jennifer was saying as well i think the key the key point here about the provision of independent about information is about having it independent from the industry and i think that's one of the strengths that hopefully ireland will see going forward it will contain a range of different information but the design and the presentation and the contact content of that information will be designed with public health as its primary objective rather than commercial outcomes as its primary objective. And I think that's exactly the direction we want to see, you know, labelling and marketing and advertising policy, both for alcohol and for a whole range of other unhealthy commodities go. There's parallels with food and gambling, etc. there as well. It's all that independence is vitally important to making sure that the public health objectives um, are reached. Yeah, I mean, it is quite extraordinary how the commercial imperative has consistently swamped the, the 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 lack of of awareness around the risk in so many of these these types of products which is you know i suppose there's a a tide uh, of movement that perhaps can can sweep that away in due course but it's 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 been slow just one last point if i could could make particularly around you know regulation and i know it's something that that nathan's wrote about as well but we tend to focus quite rightly and importantly on the implications of marketing for young people So our current study includes young people, but, you know, the age range went up to late 30s. 
And I think, you know, it's really important that we consider the impact of marketing on, on adults, especially, you know, if we consider young people, some young people are deciding not to drink and particularly adults who um, would might define themselves as in recovery from alcohol. Of course. Yeah, no, that's a really good point. Yeah. The work that we did with, with women um, active within the sober community online, you know, they, they discussed um, this idea of, of coming out of the matrix and suddenly they were aware how everyday life is just completed, completely infiltrated with alcohol marketing and how, you know, it's everywhere and they, you know, it's something that they have to consider within their day-to-day lives of, of recovery and, you know, maintaining um, abstinence if that's their concept of recovery. So, you know, we're hoping to go on to do some, some future research around this, extending the work that we've done with sober women to look at how alcohol marketing influences and impacts people's recovery that includes people who have, you know, engaged in different forms of, of recovery groups and communities as, as well. But I think it's, you know, a really important consideration that we think about not just young people, but the wider influence. Yeah. And I think there's some of the things like one of the one of the more effective aspects of the public health legislation that Jennifer was talking about, the Public Health Act, you know, is some of the measures that were taken in store to close essentially or to shut down some of the heavy below the line type promotions that was taking place of alcohol in the stores and i think the recovery the, those in recovery have certainly benefited greatly from that you know essentially limiting the visibility and the separation of the product to make it not no longer an ordinary product and to segregate into a separate part of the store i mean these are these are long-term changes, but I think I can see real benefit from those types of measures that we've brought in to, to, to really support people in, in a recovery. Well, that's about all time we have today. I'd like to thank our guests, Dr. Amanda Atkinson, Dr. Nathan Critchlow, and my own colleague, Jennifer Hall, for their time and really interesting discussion. If you'd like to learn more about alcohol marketing and why limiting children's exposure to its influence or the specific impact of alcohol in women's lives, you'll find more information on the Alcohol Action website at alcoholireland.ie. And of course, you can keep in touch with AI and our advocacy work by following us at Alcohol Ireland across all social media platforms. But until the next time, Thank you for listening and stay safe.